Well, it's so good to see everybody. Uh, we have the handouts right outside the door on the counter uh, with the sign-in sheet. If you haven't signed in before, just put your name on, on there on the back, and then uh, we will make sure that your name is listed next time. All right, it is so good to see everybody. What a, what a joy to get together uh, on, on a Friday and, and spend time with you and, and look at the scriptures. Uh, you know, the theme, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 5 today. So we're, we're, we're going to an Old Testament text. And there's, there are many themes uh, that, we can, that we can pull from with this. Uh, you know, if you think about the church today, think about your life today, uh, as we go through this text, think about how God does things differently than what we would suppose. Okay? So, you know, in the church's life, we pray. And when we pray, we have certain things in mind, don't we? Like, we know exactly what we want God to do for us, don't we? Most times, right? Like, this is what I need to be done, and, and it needs to be done in this order, if you could. And if you could do it at this time, that would be even better, right? That's, that's, that's the way we like to pray, or the way we would want to pray, right? Um, but the thing is is God works differently. So think about your own life, and you have situations that you would like to have fixed or tweaked, doors opened, hard doors closed, and you want to just have it all done. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you wait. And then... Eventually, at some point, the Lord answers your prayers, but He sometimes answers them differently, a little differently than what you would ask, that you, what you asked, right? Um, Luther talked about the hidden God. The it's a, a Latin term, Deus absconditus, and. The Deus absconditus is the hiddenness of God and how God is sometimes seemingly hidden from circumstances. And so this is where we get frustrated sometimes. This is where people sometimes lose faith and they walk away from the church and they walk away from Jesus because they are looking for an answer to a prayer and it doesn't seem to come. The hidden, the Deus absconditus, the hidden God, is that he he works even in evil. He that doesn't mean he creates evil or you know, but he he works while evil is doing its thing. So the fires are raging, and all you can see is the hot orange fire. But God is rolling right through it to do something good through it. 
And it's a comfort for us in our, in our, in our lives. You can think about this on an individual basis with your own personal circumstances. You can also think about it in terms of churches and congregations. Um, and God is always at work. So we have a text today that is one of my favorite Old Testament texts. It's Naaman who's healed of leprosy. And let's, let's read it, and then we'll, we'll walk our way through it and talk about it. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 19. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He also was a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master saying, thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Now, just pause there for a second, okay? So, backstory. Naaman is an Aramean. He is the top commander of the Syrian army. This guy was no ordinary soldier. Think about what it would have cost him in his life to become the top commander of the most powerful military in the world at that time. So do you think he had kind of a cushy desk job and then kind of worked his way up that way? And they kind of said, hey, you know, you, you shuffle papers pretty good. Come on up to the top. What, what would he have had to do to get to this top commander position? Fight as a soldier. Say that again. Fight as a soldier. Fight as a soldier. Yeah, so hard battles, lots of time in the trenches. So he lived out, yeah. Show leadership qualities. Strong leadership qualities. Yeah. Living in the tents, right? Because even the, the accommodations weren't that great out in the field in those days. So, you know, hard life, right? So he must have been a very good Warrior, good leader, strong, powerful, sharp, probably had battle wounds. He probably had scars, right? Living out on the land like that, his skin was probably pretty tough, right? Weathered. And this is the kind of guy. So just picture in your mind, you know. He was probably pretty buff, you know, muscular. You know, if he walked into this room, he would probably be quite a presence, I would think. And he would command attention. So in all parts of his life, he was successful. And his position commanded respect, too. And they had rank in those days where 
servants stayed in the servant area and somebody like him was up at the top. In this text, the servants give him instruction. So just at the beginning here already, there's this Israelite servant girl that says, hey, I know somebody that can help my master. And so he goes to his king. Now, something about the king, the king of Syria and the Syrian army was they did not like Israel. So they would often go and try to beat Israel, wage war and try to destroy them on many occasions. So the Israelites were always a little nervous about the Syrians and the fact that they were the most powerful army would also be, you know, cause some consternation and some worry. All right, so you have kind of a picture in your mind about Naaman. Buff, leathery skin, probably has some scars, pretty intimidating figure. Now, but he's got one problem. He has leprosy. So let's keep going. Yes. Why did what? Well, see, that's another really interesting question. So sometimes this happens often in the Old Testament where the Israel, the people of Israel are going in the wrong direction. Maybe they're worshiping the Baals, the Baal gods. Um, and then the Lord will do things and let other armies win. And it's, it's an attempt to try to get them to wake up and to turn them so that they repent. Same thing happens in, in King Saul's time and David with the Philistines. Um, so, yeah, very good question. And you'll see the punchline comes in a little bit too. What's wrong with the king of Israel? So verse 5 Then the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Now he sends, that's a lot of money. The shekels and the gold and the silver and the changes of clothing, that's, that's a huge sum. Verse seven, and it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, Please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So see what the the king of Israel, look at his response. He's like, what's this guy, what does he expect of me? What does he think I am, you know? And that tells you something about the man's heart and what he's thinking about his own land. Because what follows then is, Verse 8, so it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, 
that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Hold on. Wait a minute. There's a prophet in Israel? The king of Israel is like, I didn't know that. Now, that's a problem, right? Because, you know, they didn't have separation of church and state. So, you know, it was all wrapped together. So they should, he should have known part of the cultic religious life of Israel is prophets and priests and then kings. But somehow he forgot the memo that he has a prophet like Elisha that could do just that. So what's going on? In his heart, he does not think in his life about if there's troubles, the prophet could help me. So it's a spiritual problem, which means his heart is going in a different direction, which is partly why the answer to your question. The other thing is, he just, all he sees is his own problems, right? Oh, more war, more war. So Luther's Deus Absconditus, the hidden God, is, is seen in this because the, the Israelite king thinks he, t- he tore his clothes. That's serious business if you, to- if you tear your clothes like that. If you te- tear your robe, that's serious business. That is serious penitence. Like, I'm in big trouble. So then it continues, verse 9. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot... And he stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious, and he went away and and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me. And stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. I mean, think about this for a second. The top military commander of the United States military comes to your house to seek your assistance. What do you do? Are you going to send the, the servant kid to the door? And say, just go tell him such and such. And I've, I've got work to do over here. I don't have time for that. <laughs> You're not, I mean, you wouldn't do that, would you? You'd prepare. You'd be honored. You know, you would come to the door and you'd be like, oh, yes, I will help you. I'm so glad that you came. No, not Elisha. So there are reasons for this. What could be one reason? Yes. You can't be around lepers. It's unclean. Can't be around a leper because then you'll be unclean. Lepers are supposed to stay outside the city. So that's one of the problems. It would be also so that Naaman wouldn't think it was Elijah. He would recognize that he was God. Yeah. So, so that Naaman would see that it's not just Elisha's power but God's. Because in those days, you know, there was this, um, there was a lot of witchcraft and soothsaying and things like that going on uh, in some of those other countries. So it could have been a real issue for Naaman. So he's, 
in a sense, protecting Naaman as he pulls him away from his false gods, his idols. And there's another theme going on, too, where there's a Jewish theme of when you cross the threshold, you enter the holy. Okay? And so Naaman can't cross the threshold of the door yet because he's, he has leprosy. And so, you know, leprosy, think about this. So here's this guy, powerful guy, buff, probably has some scars, but he's got leprosy. Now, this leprosy, it's thought that maybe it wasn't the kind that we know modern day leprosy where like, you know, limbs fall off, but, you know, more like psoriasis or, you know, whitening. Uh, it, you know, the skin is eating away and you can see the flesh underneath and, you know, it's very painful, you know, that kind of thing. But then, you know, everything is also spiritual in these texts. So you think about, okay, the icon of Naaman, the leper, and you're seeing his sin. Uh, You're seeing uh, the uncleanliness from a life lived apart from Yahweh, apart from the Lord. And so he tells him to go wash in the Jordan seven times. Now, if if someone said that to you, you'd be like, seven, what, seven? Why seven? Did you just pick that number? But, you know, what's going on? But what's seven in the Bible? Perfect number. Yeah. And, um, he uses the word clean, too. Like, not like, and your leprosy will be gone, but you will be clean. So, holy. <laughs> yeah, good point. So be clean, you know, which gives you that sense of holiness. Baptism. Yeah, see, you're getting it. You're, you know exactly where we're headed. Baptism. Uh, so this guy, in, in the verse, um, verse 11 in Hebrew, the first words in Hebrew are to me. Me, 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 me. So the thing with Naaman is he's an important guy. He knows he's an important guy, and he wants to be treated with a special kind of treatment. And Elisha is teaching him that God's gifts are objective. So this is also the hiddenness of God, that you have this very difficult situation in Naaman's life, and he can't find any help. He comes to someone who can help him, a prophet, a man of God. But it's all made objective. Go to this. Go do this and you'll be fine. And it's the same for everybody. See, that's the key. And Naaman's not comfortable with that because servants are beneath him. And in fact, in this situation, he would view Elisha as beneath him too. So the servant that comes to the door is really beneath him. So you see what's kind of working out here? The servant girl in Israel says, I know a prophet, go. And then he goes, and then there's a servant that comes to the door and says, go. And then he goes away mad. 
Now, he wants a spectacle, which could go along with some kind of magic or sorcery where, you know, he even says, I thought he would come over and wave his, wave his hand over it, right? So, you know, kind of poof. And people like poof because it kind of gets your attention, right? Think about the healing of the paralytic in the Gospels with Jesus and they put him and he's on the mat. And there's two miracles that take place at, in that scene. One's greater, one's lesser. The greater one comes first. My son, what faith? Your sins are forgiven you. And everybody's like, grumble, grumble, grumble. What is he talking about? And he says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Hey, pick up your mat and get up and walk out of here. And then everybody's a buzz, right? So see, that, that's how we are. That's how we human beings are. We want to see. And this is where the Deus Absconditus, the hidden God, is difficult. Because God works very simply and very humbly and in the midst of common situations. And that's an encouragement for us because you go through the day in and the day out and you can kind of sometimes feel like, I really don't feel holy. I really don't feel like there's anything going on in my life. It feels mundane. I feel like I'm going through the motions. I'm just tending to my kids and they're making me tired. Uh, you know, work's wearing me out and I feel like it's the same thing all the time. And yet... The Lord is doing great things in the simple daily things that to the outside observer just look common. This is also why you see the Lord uses the common elements of water and bread and wine. And, you know, common pastors like us that you have that, but you know, the Lord is doing his great work in those situations. And so Naaman, you know, he kind of has what Luther would call the theology of glory. You know, I want to see something big and amazing because if it's big and amazing, then it must be good. But God works in a sometimes a very subtle way. So, Verse 11, but Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he'll surely come out to me, stand, call on the name of the Lord as God, wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. But then he says this, are not the Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage because you know, the Jordan River's talked about all the time. Who here has gone to see the Jordan River? Did, what, what was it like? Was it crystal clear? Could you see all the way to the bottom? No. It brown? Yeah. Over and over in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, you have God's people 
coming over the Jordan River. And like they specifically do it. So like, if I got my memory right here, when Elijah consecrates Elisha to follow as prophet, he goes over the Jordan River to consecrate him so that they can go over the river again. (laughs) And, you know, there's something in the passing through the water. Same thing with crossing the Red Sea and the people of Israel coming, you know, the Jordan parting and coming through, right? So, you know, there's a lot going on in this text. So the Jordan River is also very normal to the eye. He can think of better rivers back where he's from, and he'd rather jump in those than that one. But he's being, you know, there's, this is the, you know, you kind of look at this as a catechetical process in a sense. You can look at it as a formation process. If you looked at, looked at it as an icon, kind of in a spiritual sort of way, that to, to go into the Jordan River is to prepare yourself to become one with the people who have passed through it. Does that make sense? So the deeper side to this is by him going in the Jordan River, he is being yoked with the people of Israel who passed through the Jordan to go into the promised land. It's like to become church. So then... He turns and goes in a rage. And here comes then some more servants. Notice the repetition. Servant girl, servant at Elisha's door, now more servants. Verse 13, and his servants came near and spoke to him, which is huge to speak to him, and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So this is remarkable that he actually listens to the servants. And this theme comes up every so often in the, in the Old Testament. It comes up in the New Testament in the language of Jesus. But he listens to them. So in verse 14, he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, in and out, in and out, in and out. Probably looked kind of funny, you know. I mean, think about how humbling this would be for this guy. Because he's, there's his servants. He's Naaman. And he's like, all right, all right, you know, in and out, in and out. You know, and they're probably over there going, he looks kind of funny, you know. But... He does it. But look at what it says in verse 14. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So, got a newborn over there. And, you know, what, a, what soft skin they have when they're, when they're little. So, you know, he was probably humorously renamed Babyface. <laughs> Although maybe not said to his face, right? Um, but so the thing is with Naaman, so he's healed of his leprosy, but he's 
actually restored, clean, new, reborn. I mean, this is, this is phenomenal to me to see this in the text. He's better off than he was before he had leprosy. So he's, he's healed, and then he's cleansed. He's better. New birth, new life. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. You know, similar thing happens in Acts with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But, um, and it depends on which Bible translation you have. But there is that text where, so they're bumping along the road and the Ethiopian is reading a scroll. There's a prophet Isaiah, you know, as a lamb before his shears is silent, he's led to the slaughter, right? And he says, who is this talking about? you know, himself or someone else. And then what does the apostle do? But he starts to preach about Jesus. So he's taking the Old Testament and preaching it in a Christological way. And when they get then to a point there, he see, they see water. And it's a desert place. Like, we'll go through this whole thing one time too. But he says... Hey, what hinders me from being baptized? And one of the one translation says, "You can if you are able." And he says, "I believe, I believe in the Son of God." And I can't remember exactly how it's said, but he he basically confesses like a creedal statement: "I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God." And so, in this case, he dips seven times. Now, one other thing about the seven is. And somebody kind of mentioned it, but I wanted to add a little more to it. So God created the world in six days, but he rested on the seventh. So here is, this is the soul, right? It's in Hebrews. Hebrews talks about this. You know, entering the rest. There is now a rest for the people of God. And so the fact that it's seven is... Now, as I go through and I become one with the people who have crossed through the Jordan, now I enter this rest of, of soul. My life is new, and I'm at peace. And it's a different kind of peace than I've ever experienced before in my life. And it's peace in the midst of my trouble. And Naaman learns in this account that through this process, he understands the hidden God working in the midst of difficulty, which is really good for us. It's really important for us as we live to know that if you face difficult times and if you're facing challenges and you, you, know, you wake up and you're just kind of, ugh, Christ will carry you through it. And so 
That's where our life of prayer and our, our life of Eucharist comes in because that's too then where Jesus does his great work in our lives through the word and the sacraments in the midst of difficult times. So he wants to give a gift. So he confesses in verse 15. He comes out of the water and he makes a confession of faith. I mean, in some ways, it's sort of like the catechumenate where you start in this process of formation and you get to a point where you confess the creed. And this is what they did in the early church. Like, they would have periods of preparation and then, like, pro-catechesis, you know, you're kind of getting them, you know, talking to them a little bit and getting them ready for catechesis. And then you start into catechesis and you start instructing. And then they, you get to a point where they learn the creed and then they confess the creed. And the creed, the Apostles' Creed, is tied to baptism, as we know. So you see here a very, um, a very uh, old, simple, creedal statement. And the creed, creeds are all over in the Bible, by the way. Like, if you ever have people that say, you know, um, you Lutherans, you confess creeds, but... There's no creeds in the Bible. That creed's not in the Bible. You're, cre- you're, you're confessing man-made stuff. Well, let me tell you, there are creeds all over in the Bible, but they're, they're simple in form. Like in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema prayer, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a creedal statement. So you have the Shema prayer, which is like a creed. And then right after the Shema prayer in Deuteronomy 6, you then have the summary of the commandments. Love the Lord, your love, fear, love, and trust in God above all things and love your neighbor as yourself. So those two things fit. If you kind of did it on a, on a board, you'd have the creed, the Shema prayer, and then love for God, love for neighbor underneath. And so this is kind of how, this is how God works. He, he comes to us through his sacramental gifts, through his word. He reveals himself to us and he teaches us love. And this is implicitly what's happening in 2 Kings chapter 5 because he must see, in this case, he must see God's work in healing himself, healing him, so that when he comes out, he makes this confession of faith. And he, he wants to give a gift, because that's how things roll with him. But what does Elisha say in verse 16? As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. It's a gift of God. And Elisha is a servant to give the gift in the Lord's Lord's way and at the Lord's command. So then it gets really interesting. In verse 17, Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, 
For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord, to Yahweh. Why two mule-loads of earth? Isn't that a strange thing? Like, he was just complaining about the River Jordan. You know, he's like, that's a muddy river. Now he wants two mule-loads of earth? What for? Well, it was commonly thought in those days in other countries that you had to have the same earth to worship on, to worship the God of that place. But now tweak it just a little bit. So what he, what's going on in between the lines is he's been healed through water and God's, God's word through the prophet. He has confessed the faith. Now he wants to be on the soil of the church. Holy community. So, here again, the icon is, you know, as I've said before, the devil's work is to isolate you. That's always his work. That's how he wins. He isolates and puts people in corners and divides. And the Lord's work is to bring into community and consensus around the creed, which Naaman just confessed, a, you know, creedal, a creedal faith. And now he wants to be gathered with the church. You know, typology. Are you all familiar with typology? You know, types, okay, types and antitypes. So a type, we t- think, talk about a type of Christ. Uh, it, you see shadows that look like Jesus in the Old Testament, and then Jesus shows the full picture of it in the New Testament. So like, this is not, the, this is not baptism like we've been given in the church. It's a type of baptism. So it's a shadow. His cleansing is a shadow of what is to come in baptism. So that when you see baptism then, and you see baptismal texts, and you watch a little baby that's going to be baptized on Sunday, you read this and you go, that's baptism. That's teaching us about baptism. So he wants to be on the soil of Elisha and the people of Israel. And then he says this, because he's, here's the difficulty. He now, being a child of God, has to go back to his country where there's all kinds of idol worship and witchcraft and who knows what. And he knows it's going to be tough. So what does he say? Verse 18. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bowed, listen to the emphasis. When I bow down into the temple of Rimon, 
May the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. He's a penitent heart. He's confessing. Confession and absolution. I mean, this text to me is amazing because it's way before the time of Jesus. And yet, it has all of the picture of the church. Water, cleansing, renewal, confession of faith, soil, community, confession. And then how does Elisha say, oh no, don't do that. No, no, don't do that. No, anything but that. No, he says, verse 19, go in peace. Absolution. And that, I mean, this is a picture of the church. And so, this is so pertinent and helpful, I think, for our lives as we journey. I mean, it's, it's such an old text. It's, it's a beautiful text. There in the Old Testament, and how many times have you read the Old Testament and you're like, I don't know what this is saying, right? Like, you know, you try and you're like, I know I, I got to be reading the Bible. I'm a Christian. You read the Bible, you read the Old Testament and you're like, man, I'm really confused now. But see, typology is, so here's like um, uh, Origen, for example, an early church father. He said to people like, how do you read the Bible? You know, new Christians, how do you read the Bible? Start with the Gospels first. Because when you read the Gospels first, you get the real picture. And then, after you read the Gospels and know the Gospels, then read the rest of the New Testament. And then, lastly, you read the Old Testament. Which is completely different from what we would think, right? When you read a book, what do you do? You go, page one. Page 2, page 10. But with the Bible, it's different because if you don't know the kerygma, the preaching, the proclamation of Jesus and the accounts in the Gospels, this might be, in, this might be interesting, but much is missed. But if you understand Jesus and his atonement and the church's life and the sacramental life, then it all starts to make sense. So many themes in, in the Old Testament, like, you know, it's, it's worth talking about uh, on so many occasions. But So you have Elijah, not to be confused with Elisha. Elijah, he, he does a lot of his work outside of Israel, so he's kind of out in the countryside and he's out alone and he's running from Jezebel who wants him dead and, you know, he's sitting by himself and he's being fed by ravens and, you know, he's like a John the Baptist figure, right? And in fact, that comes out later in the Bible, right? Jesus says the Elijah, you know, John the Baptist. But Elisha is like a Jesus figure, in the Old Testament. So, you know, you have this picture. So, Moses, Joshua. So, Moses is the wandering one in the desert, right? Leads them out of Egypt, but then they wander for 40 years. He gets mad, smacks the rock. 
God won't let him in the promised land, right? So he can only look at the promised land from afar, but then Joshua gets consecrated, and then Joshua goes across the Jordan River and leads the people into the promised land. So you have Moses and Joshua. So Moses is like John the Baptist. Joshua is like Jesus, hence the name Joshua. Okay. Then you have Elijah is like John the Baptist. Elisha is like Jesus. And you see this because Elisha does a lot of miracles that are similar to Jesus. Like, for example, in um, 2 Kings 4, it's very brief. This would be worth doing some, doing some time if we do the feeding of the 5,000. But in 2 Kings 4, 42 to 44, then a man came from Baal Shalishah and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what? Shall I set this before 100 men? He said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. Does this sound familiar? So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Now, in this, that's like a Jesus thing right there. And that's Elisha. Now, the difference is with Elisha, it's 20 loaves of barley bread feeding 100 people and, you know, including women and children more. But but if that were the case, I don't know if it is in that situation. But with Jesus, the miracle explodes, right? Just a few fish, a few loaves of bread, 5,000 men, not including women and children. So there's Jesus and Elisha. These themes are all over in the scriptures. And they're always meant to lead us somewhere. And where we are led is to see that the Lord has brought us into the promised land into the, par- the, the, the paradise of eternal life as we pass through the waters of baptism. Hence, the practical, look at the symbolic placement of our baptismal font. You go by it to go into the holy. You pass by. You dip, make the sign of the cross. You go in and you draw near to the things of Jesus, into the holy space. And so all these themes are alive for us today and they are the constant reminder. Every time you come into church and you walk by that baptismal font and you stick your fingers in the water and make the sign of the cross or just look at it and you go, the Lord is always taking care of me and he carries me through and I walk, you know, the the troubled times and the weirdness of what the last year and a half has been and whatever else is going on, but yet the Lord loves me and he will take care of me through all of it. And by the way, I'm drawn near to the Eucharist and and that's where he continues to feed and, and care for me. All right, I think it's time to go. So let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, 
our great high priest. Cleanse us by the power of your redeeming blood that in purity and peace we may worship and adore your holy name. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.